This is a Demon FM podcast. Today on Perspectives by Demon FM. I can understand why those students who see themselves as consumers would be angry with staff for going out on strike. Their argument would be that this is, I'm paying you, I'm paying you. It's about money and money's inserted itself between us as human beings. And that's one of the tragedies of this. And I think that that's one of, one of the things that we're struggling against. Strikes are coming to De Montfort University with hundreds of staff taking part in 14 days of action spread out over February and March. But why? What does this mean for you? Find out on Perspectives. On the 30th of January, the DMU branch of the Universities and Colleges Union announced that their members had voted for strikes joining 73 other university branches who are taking part in this round of industrial action. The Universities and Colleges Union, UCU for short, is an organisation that represents the interests of over 120,000 people. Not just lecturers, but all manner of support staff too, like administrators, librarians and IT technicians. Over the last year or so, they've been negotiating with the UCEA, or the Universities and Colleges Employers Association, over the key issues of pay, equality casualisation and workloads. For many students, this dispute has fallen under the radar, so here's a quick explainer on what those key issues mean. The first one is pay. The numbers differ between sources, but the UCU claims that pay has dropped anywhere between 17 and 25% since 2009. There are a number of reasons for this, but one of the biggest is that pay hasn't risen in line with inflation meaning that while the number of pounds paid might look similar since 2009, the actual value of that pay packet has dropped. The equality issue refers to the difference in both pay and available opportunities between the different social groups that universities employ. For example, the gender pay gap between men and women, or the number of white people in teaching posts compared to black, Asian and ethnic minority people. Casualisation is harder to pin down, but it's basically about a growing number of lecturers and other staff being given part-time or zero-hours contracts instead of full-time employment. You can see the same issue elsewhere in the job market, where it can be cheaper and more efficient for an employer to only pay an employee for the times that they're needed, rather than guaranteeing them a certain amount of pay each week, month or year. Finally, workload is the one that flies under the radar for most people. You only see your lecturer for your timetabled sessions and personal tutoring hours, but they also get time factored in for session prep, marking assessments, supervising students on trips, and representing their courses on open days, amongst other things. The UCU feels that universities don't factor enough time into staff contracts for these quote-unquote secondary duties. So that's the UCU's position. Who are they actually fighting against? I mentioned the UCEA earlier, the University and Colleges Employers Association. DMU is part of this group, as are 146 other universities. You could think of them as a sort of union that represents university management all across the country, and they've been negotiating with the UCU on behalf of DMU. In other words, these issues are national rather than limited to DMU. The UCEA and the UCU are both trying to get a solution to all of these problems that is acceptable for all of their members, which is why following union disputes like this can be exhausting or confusing. The UCEA are offering pay rises across the board, but telling universities to work on equality, casualisation and workload based on their own individual cases. 
This wasn't acceptable to the UCU, which is why they balloted for strike action and ultimately how we got to where we are today. The word strike conjures up different images for different people. The violent miners' strikes of the 1980s, or a mass movement of schoolchildren taking days off to protest climate change, or simply arriving at your train station to find out that your train is cancelled. Fortunately, we won't see anything quite that dramatic over the 14 days of strike action at DMU. I want to talk to Richard, who's a professor of education, and Sherry, an international student tutor in business and law. There's going to be a a picket in five locations and it's going to be, we've called it joyful. We're trying to see it as a celebration of solidarity and we would encourage students to come and talk to us. There's going to be uh, music. We're planning on having one of the pickets that is child friendly so that people who have childcare commitments and can't get there and, and that that would be impacted by them being at work. They can bring them along. We'll have games. We'll have um, making spaces for those children as well. So we don't want it to be at all intimidatory because I know a few people can kind of worry that, that these things get out of hand and they can be violent and intimidatory and they see stuff from the past. And we are absolutely not interested in that. We're deliberately flagging this as joyful and we're flagging it in terms of kind of solidarity between staff themselves who are out on strike, but also with students. The lecturers and the professional staff are striking over pay, casualisation, equality and workload. Which of these do you think is the most important to you and the most troubling issue and why? Goodness, I don't want to do all the talking, but that's a really interesting question. The combination of those issues really across the sector, it really sort of enables us to engage with issues around the value of higher education, what the idea of the university is. So increasingly we see issues around casualization. People can't get full-time tenured jobs. They're fighting for fractional contracts. They're holding down a teaching job in multiple places. They can't put food on the table. They're on zero hours contracts. But also we see that disproportionately that falls on certain individuals, tends to fall more on female members of staff, for instance. And there are issues there around promotion as well. So even if we look at this institution's published figures on between men and women in terms of pay, you'll see in the bottom quartile, it's more women in the institution. They, they're generally also professional services rather than the top of the institution. So we see them interconnected. In a, and, we, and I guess our argument is this is not the higher education that we want our students to be engaged in because we don't see that the value for them is, is I guess, is as, as much as it might be because the working conditions of staff are being, I guess there's nutrition on that, they're more toxic. And actually, it's a really vicious circle. So I've recently graduated as a PhD student, but those couple of years of being a PhD student is just, it's very, very difficult because on the one hand, you are kind of like a mature like established researcher, so you are capable of getting out there and delivering classes, but because of the resources and here and there, it's not distributedly, you know, fair enough. Then the PhD student get really, really disadvantaged over this phase, and they end up being the like you know top list of the casualization like group basically, and then they will actually come up with excuses saying that well you are technically students. So why are you teaching anyway? Why should we give you teaching opportunities like any other professory? 
And let's bring to the topic where, you know, when a PhD student graduated and we are hoping to continue to develop in academia, and then all these criteria are kind of like, oh, you need to have how many years of teaching experience? You need to have how many years of like, you know, publishing experience in here and there. So on the one hand, you know, you're not being offered the opportunity to do so. You're being casualized. You're even volunteering to work for people so that you get a little bit of experience on your CV in order to get a job later. So these are just a fraction or a screenshot of what's happening in higher education. Is this going to like put you off from going into uh, academia? Is this making you and like your, your other peers like a bit more cautious about going into teaching? Yes, it's exactly. It's that there were not fair teaching opportunities because the university are not willing to pay that many PhD students are teaching. There's a... There's, there's an eruption online of, of blog posts of people writing about quitting. There's a lot of what's called quit lit, people leaving the academy, people who can't get tenure, people who, I guess, perceive that they come in with hopes around having a kind of almost a sort of a permanent role, doing the job they love, right? It's, it's regarded as a labor of love because you want to do it because you care about your students' kind of futures, um, seeing that that is not possible, that they can't put food on the table and can't pay their rent. And or, and these are some of the most horrendous things I've heard from across the sector, people who are putting off having families, for instance, people who are because of, because of research implications, because they've got to be in the lab, because they're being expected to work 80, 90 hours a week. So I think part of it in this, when you asked the previous question you asked about, which is most important, for me, as I sit here now thinking about it, it's the equality issue. There is no equality in the, in the space between different different people in that in that space you know in terms of what is the space operates as if it looks like me a white entitled male professor it, it operates around those norms in every institution every university and if you don't if you've got caring responsibilities if you're disabled if you're queer if you're female if you're if you you know if you've got like i have to care for my grandma at the moment but if you've got childcare or you've got to look after your you know an, an ill parent or whatever it becomes very very difficult to kind of exist in the space because of the targets and the workload implications okay what would you say to those students then because i've seen quite a number of things on twitter where people don't care about the issues at hand or they don't understand the issues at hand and they're just angry that their teachers are leaving them in the lurch close to assessments and deadlines and exams and things like that what would you say to them well, we've been talking about this one sentence. Our strike is not built on your sacrifice. Our fight is against the employer saying that, you know, you're not giving us a fair share of what's going on. So the student numbers are increasing, but the staff numbers are not. In fact, we actually saw statistics that the proportion of the money that universities spend on staff is declining like crazily so how can we cope with a situation where the students are increasing while the staff is declining so basically we start to feel stressed out we can't even deliver the high quality teaching that we want to give to students and that's why students need to care about what we are going through and also we are encouraging the student to ask the university how are you going to deal with this if your staff is you know on strike because in couple of years 
Our current students will be employees in higher education. If they don't resolve the issues right now, it will only get worse for the students' future. I completely understand where those students are coming from. I understand the logic of the, arg- of the argument that there's a, there's a fee that's being paid. There are living costs as well, and that, it's the Wild West living costs. We could argue that the, the fee is a graduate contribution, but you are going to have to pay back those those accommodation costs, those living costs, all of that kind of stuff. So I completely see where that where that's coming from. But Sherry's right that actually the issue here is our engagement with with management. And I would encourage students to to be talking to institutional management about these issues. I would encourage them to be talking to them about the fact that um, there have been there's been a rapid increase in occupational health referrals for mental ill health and well being. Liz Morris wrote a piece for the Higher Education Policy Institute called Pressure Vessels about across the sector about the increase in occupational health referrals, mental distress, ill health amongst staff. And that does materially affect um, students' learning conditions. If staff are ill, if staff are off ill, if other staff are having to pick stuff up, if other staff can't produce meaningful research, that affects those those students. Issues around casualization affects affects students because staff will be leaving, they'll be getting better contracts, they'll be getting full-time contracts somewhere, you'll get a rapid turnover. It's, no students want to be taught ostensibly by precarious part-time hourly paid staff. They want people who are kind of committed to the development of modules and programs over time in that space. And I would also argue, I guess, that the, the fights that we've got here against casualization, against um, for, for pay equality are fights that we don't just want to see in the university. We want to see in the supply chains that feed into the university. We want to see them in the NHS. We want to see them in terms of kind of healthcare and social welfare. We want to see them in the private sector too. So this struggle is a is part of a broader, almost anti-austerity struggle that is about equality in society. One of the crucial things here, I guess, as well, is that we, at this institution, the struggle is not over pensions. In the other half of the sector, it's over the USS pension scheme. One of the issues here is that we're seeing an attrition. This is intergenerational, so it does impact those students. Because if that fight goes down and the other half of the sector around USS, the next struggle will be over the over the teacher's pension scheme in this half of the or the local government pension scheme in this half of the sector. And again, pension we're seeing an attrition on pensions not just in the university but more broadly across society. So we'd encourage students to come and talk to us about that because actually it's their pensions and their futures and, and the schemes they go into that are going to be affected as well. How do you think we got to this point where universities are kind of some people saying that universities are being run like businesses and universities aren't able or unwilling to pay teaching staff what they feel they deserve? And that, not giving them time that they need to do whatever it is they did that they do. There's a number of people who who would argue that, that there was once a golden age for universities, and it's baloney. There was never a golden age for universities. Universities always been tied to government, the state, religion, whatever it might be. They've always been a means of kind of validating knowledge for those in power. Where we are kind of currently. I guess, is that actually we're, we're seeing a, almost a kind of a, lo- a logic for that where those in power see universities as a means for generating human capital and economic growth and productivity because we can't kickstart the economy. So part of this is about selling debt. Part of it is about because that's the way in which the kind of, we can kind of, I guess, effectively get Thai students into that 
sense of 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 who they are in society, their economic units, they're competing, you know, they're competing entrepreneurs, they're employable, whatever it might be. That's certainly been the line of of travel from the from Blair's new Labour government right through right through to now, where we see increasingly universities as competing businesses. They're all measured. They're all they compete in terms of league tables. They compete in terms of um, employability statistics. On every on every level, individuals, individual academics compete, subjects compete, disciplines compete, um, sector sectors compete, institutions compete on an on a on a national and international terrain. And it's about status and privilege. And we're academics, right? So a lot of us like status and privilege, unfortunately. But as well, it's about the it's about converting the university into a, into a business, into a competing business, because it, because the university is now. Is not some is not separate from the kind of the kind of the economy. It's not somehow seen as a separate. It's inextricably tied in, and it is about productivity, and it is about uh, economic growth. It's about the generation of human capital, and there's an ideological terrain that's been a policy terrain that's kind of you know speeches from secretaries of state that set this up, and then it's been followed with acts of parliament. For example, like UK is one of the countries that brought in a lot of international students and branding the education to be like the best one in a way. I mean, I'm not saying it's not, but then when you have a large quantity of international students coming in, what the university are prepared to accommodate this situation, they are not ready. They just take their money and then let them survive on their own. Right, and then why the international students are coming here is also because the league table that Richard just mentioned. So the most frequent questions asked among the international students is: so how does this university ranked on which league table? Because that's the question their future employers asking them. So sometimes they don't even look at what you study. They no longer see that higher education is where you go to to discover yourself to find. What you are truly passionate about and learning about different ways of learning is about having a gold-plated, you know, thing on yourself. And you are from this top ten university, then you are good to go. Come into my company. That's what's motivating the whole industry. Money, right? It's the rule of money. Money effectively kind of dominates the landscape. Can I get enough money? Can I make enough money? And that oper- that's operates in terms of the recruitment of international students across the sector. Can we get enough surplus because we need the surplus to invest in buildings because we need to invest in buildings in order that students will, will think we're marketable and they'll come here and they like our brand and we might therefore go up in the league table so we can attract more students and get more money in order to and it's about constant kind of expansion. So it isn't about the social value of the university as much. It isn't about solving big societal issues like um, global warming, climate warming, climate heating. Sorry, it isn't about solving issues to do with the refugee crisis, for instance. Beyond its ability to generate a surplus and to generate money, and part of the issue there is that that I can understand why those students who see themselves as consumers would be angry with staff. For going out on strike, and they would not want to talk to the staff about why. Their argument would be that this is I'm paying you. I'm paying you. It's about money, and money's inserted itself between us as human beings, and that's one of the tragedies of this. And I think that that's one of one of the things that we're struggling against.
also asked DMU to put up someone for interview, but they declined. They did, however, send a statement, which you can also find on the Industrial Action FAQs on the DMU website. A DMU spokesperson said, while we of course recognise the legal rights of employees to take industrial action, we will do everything that we can to ensure that our students experience minimal disruption to their study as a consequence. The number of days being observed during the industrial action does mean that there will be some lectures and other teaching events affected. We are making every effort to ensure that any students who might be affected are informed wherever possible and are putting in place a number of mitigating measures throughout the period. The first day of the strike action will start on Thursday the 20th. Will you be supporting the academics on the picket lines? Or are you not convinced by Richard, Sherry and the UCU's arguments? Tweet us at DemonFM or message us on our Anchor FM profile. I've been Tom Fair and this was Perspectives on Demon FM. This episode of Perspectives was written, presented and produced by Tom Fair with special thanks to Richard Hall, Sherry Taishaojo and Catherine Markham. You can find more of our podcasts on anchor.fm forward slash demonfm dash podcasts. Oh no, is it over? Well, don't worry, because if you head on over to Demon FM Podcasts on Anchor, you can listen to all of our other podcasts as well as keep an ear out for any new episodes. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and more. Go on, have a listen. I support you.